Welcome to Ponderings from the Perch, the Little Bird Marketing Company podcast. As always, this is Priscilla McKinney, and I'm here with a special guest. And um, I know that for the entrepreneurs, the C-suite, the VPs of marketing, and uh, the business owners, even the freelancers, this is where I try and bring some value, bring someone who's doing something different in this industry, helping you understand how you can move the needle in your business, in your career, and really understand what's going on in the industry. So I am so happy to have with me Paul Connor from Emotive Analytics. Hello, Paul. Hello, Priscilla. I'm very happy to be here and uh, share what I can to your audience. So well, I it'll be valuable. It will be. I'm telling you, I know it'll be valuable. This is why I called you back because we met. You were keynoting at an event I attended for Insights Association, which is a marketing research uh, association for anybody who is not aware of what they do or who they are. But I am always interested in in how people are understanding how consumers are relating to brands and you. You really just had a bright light on some very, very interesting topics, and I knew that my listeners would enjoy this conversation, so I'm so glad to have you on. Fantastic. Well, let's talk a little bit about what your company is, because um, emotive analytics, to me, I, as a trained cultural anthropologist, I already went a million directions, and I, I knew that. But I also know that I'm a little bit of a freak, as uh, as noted when I'm at a cocktail party, what we end up talking about. It usually goes in very different directions. So I am sure that everybody does not truly understand uh, what you what you mean with a business name like Emotive Analytics? So let's start there. What is your job? What does your company do? What is that big that What is that big picture, Paul? Great. Well, the, I guess the mission statement can be summarized like this. Um, basically, we're a, a a research company, consumer research or marketing research, that reveals what I call the emotional dynamics of consumer behavior. And then there's a little dash there, and then we continue with especially the subconscious emotional dynamics. So let me break that down a little bit more. So research is what we do. That's the primary activity that we're involved with. But we research into how people feel, if I can use that simple word, how people feel about brands, products, services, et cetera. Why do we do that? Why is that important? Well, it's very important because... When I first started seeing, at the turn of the century, what psychologists and neuroscientists were doing, they were revealing to the marketing folks and researchers like me that emotions were really what drives people to do what they do. I like to say that uh, we do what we do, we buy what we buy because our emotions and feelings tell us to, and that's what these scientists were telling us. And the second part of that is that they were telling us that a lot of this dynamic happens subconsciously. Many times people are not even aware of how they're being impacted by their emotions and feelings, um, impacted in terms of their uh, purchase decisions. So when I saw that coming from psychology and neuroscience, um, I've been a researcher all my life, but I thought this is a great area to really focus on um, and study and so I could help my clients better their business in the area of emotions. Well, in research, it is, in general, you know, 
about numbers and people are delivering um, surveys and trying to quantify what's going on. But there is such a quality and the whole, you know, another side of what, you know, marketing research that is qualitative. But you're delivering another layer of why it, what is qualitative and what is quantitative and that you're looking at the complexity of how you even get to that decision. Is that, do you think that's a fair analysis? Well, I, I would um, state it this way. We can assess emotions both qualitatively, that is, in just hearing people talk in rich language about how they feel about things, but we can also turn their feelings into numbers, if you will. So we can assess and, and ask questions on surveys that also represent how they feel about things and turn them into quantitative uh, metrics, if you will. And, and some people like quantitative metrics. They, they want to see over a large sample what percentage of people are feeling certain ways or not. But other clients want to get deeper into just the sense and the nature of the emotionality and get more uh, of, of a narrative about what's happening. And the best studies combine the two. So, for instance, a study might be that we count the number of people that feel certain ways, and then we invite them for a one-on-one -on -one interview, and we say, hey, we saw that you kind of feel this way. Tell us more about that. And then we talk more deeply and get more of a, a qualitative narrative about their feelings. Mm. Well, let's dive a little bit deeper, just even though it's fast to dive right into this. But, you know, when you were speaking the other day and talking specifically about the some nuances between the conscious uh, emotions that people were showing in the research versus the subconscious or non-conscious, I think you actually said, um, uh, emotions that were coming up in the research. Why, why is that so important? Why can that not be left out? Well, it, it's really important for another thing that scientists are telling us about how people make decisions. Really, people make decisions in what's called academically a dual process way. Um, a dual process, the word dual, of course, means two, and that is that when we encounter stimuli in our environment, a brand name, a product, uh, an advertisement in this, um, in this topic, um, we react to it two ways. First of all, very quickly and most often non-consciously, we're not even aware of our reactions, we react to it emotionally. Um, we have to have some reaction emotionally because evolutionarily we have to survive right um, so we bring that from our um, from the folks we evolved from so that's a very quick reaction and that's sometimes called system one an implicit reaction but then often not always but often we think about what we're aware of in our environment we think about the brands we're looking at we think about the products and we reflect and rationalize, if you will. That's a word that's often used. And that's the second phase of the dual process. That's called system two or explicit or conscious deliberation, whatever you want to call it. So human beings always react these two ways to stimuli. They don't always think about it, though. I, I, let me correct that. They don't always think about it. They always react automatically and non-consciously first. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's important to understand what's happening subconsciously. And it's also important for researchers because traditional techniques like surveys or direct conversation with people really is, 
having them respond from this system too. They're deliberating on their answers on a survey. They're deliberating in an interview. And we're missing the subconscious content, the subconscious reactions that people have to their environment that sometimes go without the thinking to influence their behavior. So our techniques that we talked about in the presentation I gave and that we do at Emotive Analytics, they get at the subconscious so we can tell marketers, hey, this is how people are reacting to your products and services before they even have time to think about it and deliberate about it. And that can lead marketers for new insights about how people are feeling. And then beyond that, uh, we hope to consult with them about what to do about that. Right, yeah. Repackage it, change change a product name, a color, a look. Yeah, there's just so many ramifications there. But l- l- there's a little piece in there. So the narrative that you're saying that you can get from some of this more in-depth, m- you know, market research talking about their actual um, emotions and the conscious and non-conscious parts that are happening there, what happens when you start writing a narrative? Or are you saying that you let then the the person who's being researched, let them tell their own narrative, or you're delivering a narrative at the end of the research to the company? Um, Well, the narrative can be a report to the company. Um, Earlier, I used the word narrative uh, to refer to what respondents are telling me and and my associates about their feelings, their experiences, etc. So uh, there are two parts of that narrative. I wanted to know a little bit more about, let, let's actually give people a real, real world scenario. And then I'm going to ask you about a little nuance about logical people versus emotional. And I'm using air quotes here on the podcast, emotional sure. people versus logical people. But um, yeah, can you, is there one of the things, I know it was really easy with the slides and helping us see the surveys and what was happening, but is there one of those examples uh, that you think would would convey well over a podcast and how you could explain maybe one of those techniques so that people could really understand the depth of what you're surveying? Well, okay, if we're talking about the techniques we use to research uh, people, I'll start on the qualitative side um, because that's how I got started into starting to learn about the subconscious emotions that people have. Mm -hmm. So on the qualitative side, if I'm interviewing somebody, to get at the subconscious, what we have to do is somehow turn off or work around the analytical mind, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And one way to do that, many ways to do that, come from clinical psychology. So one thing that I've learned that's really interesting uh, uh, in an interview situation is, um, I use this word, some clients don't like it, but it's hypnosis interviewing. Mm -hmm. So I became trained in hypnosis and use that when we interview people. Now, hypnosis I'm referring to is not the hypnosis uh, that these entertainers use and get people on the stage quacking like ducks, et cetera, right. et cetera. <laughs> but it's simply just think of it more as a relaxing people, relaxing the analytical mind through uh, an induction phase. And when we're talking to people with this relaxed mind, they're not worried about how they're coming across. They're not worried about whether they're right or they're wrong. There's no stress involved. So what's there in the subconscious, including emotional content, is freer. It's not filtered. So it comes up without people critically analyzing what's being said and trying to logically think through it. So in those states of mind, we can get at the subconscious. Another technique we use from clinical psychology is called psychodrama. And in psychodrama, people reenact uh, consumer situations or life situations, in this case, consumer situations, and 
in the reenactment of something, we, when we have people stand up and go through a drama, if you will, with other people in the room, let's say they're reenacting the last time they bought a computer, when they reenact things, the behavior and the emotions that they had at the initial time of their experience are imprinted in their brain, and the act of doing that brings those more readily to the surface. So they'll be surprised about how they felt because it'll come subconsciously through the subconscious mm. to the conscious mind, and then we can talk about it in a psychodrama. Um, on the quantitative side, it's a little trickier. Um, I, I could you know, take a long time to do this. Let me see if I can do it in just a minute or two. So what we have to do on the quantitative side is prime people. By prime, I mean we need to show them a very quick representation of the stimulus of interest. It could be their brand logo. We, we use that as an example. Okay. You prime them, which automatically activates that system one that I spoke about earlier, mm -hmm. their emotions and feelings with that very quickly. So they're activated from the subconscious, and then we misdirect them to respond to something else. We use abstract images. Think of Rorschach ink blots. And we ask people, what is this ink blot conveying? Well, having been primed with a brand makes those associations with the brand more accessible, and it influences how they react to the ink blot that we're showing them, or so whatever abstract image it is. Yes. So they're transferring that emotion onto that image and being freed up, basically, to talk about it more, more freely. Is that what you're saying? That's it. Yes, and academically, it's called a misattribution of their feelings for the brand onto their feelings for the uh, abstract image. And they don't understand that this is happening. But we can count the number of times that happens in these tasks that we give them. And that is what leads to the quantitative metrics that we can uh, present to our clients. This phenomenon is also what leads people to kick the dog when they come home from a horrible day at work. <laughs> <laughs> Could be, yeah. has Could nothing be. to do with the dog. It's just completely That's transferred. Right. <laughs> something, else, something else primed them at work. Yeah, and yeah. And the poor dog, you know, is taking a beating. I hear you. Well, so let's talk a little bit about your day-to-day -day then. That's a really great view of what is, you know, what you do in terms of using, you know, qualitatively and quantitatively gauging what's going on emotionally with people when they're interacting with brands. What do you do day in and day out? Well, one thing that I think you'll probably relate to is I run my own business, so there's a lot of administrative <laughs> hats that I have to wear that, that yes. don't have anything to do with research. So that's mm -hmm. kind of a troublesome part of my day. Mm -hmm. But once I get that in order, usually in the mornings, I, I move on to a number of things. I, I, I will definitely have studies going on, so I'll do some data analysis or I might be listening to some interviews that I've done. Um, I'll be writing things. I, I do a lot of reading of academic articles about emotions, and I'll write about them. I'll blog about them, so there will be some degree of, of writing. The reading has to take place for me to get there, so I may spend an hour a day or so writing. Um, and then back to uh, running the business, there's a good deal of answering emails and um, getting on uh, social media, writing blogs or mm -hmm. writing social media texts, et cetera, et cetera. So, Dealing um, with pesky podcasters who keep bothering you to come on their show. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's, that's definitely a pleasure. Not only is it interesting, it, it breaks up my day a little bit. Um, and then, of course, there are times uh, when I am asked to speak at conferences. So, um, you know, maybe 
three or four times a year, I'll go out and speak at conferences about some of the topics we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. So, and and do you have some coming up um, pretty soon? What What's going on on your schedule? What does your year look like? Yeah, the, uh, the nearest in time to our talk today is uh, June 13th. I'll be at the what's called the IIEX North America Conference. It's about insight and innovational techniques or, or innovative techniques, excuse me, about uh, a lot of consumer research. And it gets into a lot of these areas of emotion that we're talking about today. So um, I'll be speaking at that June 13th, uh, all about this uh, quantitative approach that we use that I described a second ago, the priming approaches. Um, after that, I will be speaking in San Francisco about a, about discrete emotions uh, at another conference uh, in San Francisco. Okay, if people wanted to find that on, where would they look on your site for where um, where you're going to be keeping up to date with uh, where you're speaking? Yeah, I don't know if I have it on my site just yet. Um, I'll just mention it here: the IIEX North America. If you Google the capital I capital IEX North America, you'll see that one, and it's it's in Atlanta. The other one I spoke about was in San Francisco. It's called the IEN, the Insight Exchange Network. And it, if you just type in the letters S-E-B-A, SEBA, I think you'll get there. Okay. And um, the IIEX, uh, that's uh, put on in part by Green Book and some other sponsors. I've spoken a lot for them. Actually, this last year, I ended up speaking for them quite a bit at some of their other market research clients. So those have been fun. And I've met a lot of interesting people in the mar- market research world. So um, yeah, it, that you, when you look up the IIEX, there are so many of those. Um, you know, from like I was just speaking at one in London. There was one. You really have to put in Atlanta if you want to find this one. I'm just warning you. Yeah, right put now. in Atlanta. They're they're throughout the year international, um, yeah. and there are a variety of them from very general to much more specific. Cool, cool. Well, that that'll be awesome. I hope I can catch you again live. It was very very interesting. Um, Man, it was just a lot of a lot of food for thought, and I think the slides are just a little bit more interactive, where you kind of make us go through the little bit of those emotions. We're like, oh, that's what's happening, because the reality is is that we are making those decisions emotionally, even when we think we're 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 making them rationally. Our emotions are informing our reason, and then and then those cogs are going. So before we that's talk, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. that's a great. Point. I don't. If, if you don't mind, I'd like no. to elaborate on that because I know your audience is a lot of entrepreneurs and. Mm-hmm who may not know this very much, but what you said is so true that as human beings, emotions are always operating. Um, I like to say that there's really no such thing as a strictly rational decision because even when we're thinking about things, our emotions are evaluating our thought process and informing it as to what thoughts we're having are going to be good for us, what are going to lead to our well-being. So, um, Emotions are always operating, and their function is to inform uh, our thinking about what our best decisions might be, including buying things. Well, there's an older, you know, marketing research kind of, I'm sure this is, you know, older than the hills in in advertising, but we talk about these older studies where people who said they were logical buyers, they were rational kind of like accountant type people who believed that they were not influenced by their emotions in buying and relating to consumer products. And I wish I could cite the study exactly, but, you know, I read this very early on in my career. Um, Actually, those people who believe that, who lead with that, oh, I'm logical, I make decisions 
decisions on logical things. Commercials don't influence me. Packaging doesn't influence me. Things like that. When they made those types of statements, when tested, they were actually more influenced by those uh, particular uh, sets. And that is because they did not have the awareness that they were being in in the true sense of the word, manipulated by marketers, right? Where true. people who are in tune and self aware and say, "Wow, I I'm being manipulated. I really my feel it. I really want to buy this, and I don't have a logically great reason to buy it." And really, at the end of the day, you know, this car or this car, and this one actually comes in a cooler blue. You know, you know, right, obviously right. it's it's not going to be oh this one costs eighty thousand and this one's a two thousand dollar beater. You know, there have to be you know some kind of you know a connection, but emotion does play in it, and the people who are more aware of their emotions um, then are truly more in control of that decision, at least knowing where it's coming from. And yeah, I think that's right. I have an interesting story, if you don't mind, uh, yeah. that that fits with that story that you just told. So when I was first learning about what I'm talking about today, that emotions are so important, I got a meeting with a chief marketing officer at a Fortune 500 company, and I went in and we started talking about it, and he asked about my company, and I, I made the bold statement that, you know, emotions really do drive everything that we do, and it wasn't long into me saying things like that that he stopped me, and he was looking scornful, and he said, I don't believe that. He said, I, let me tell you a story about my life. And so he told me about a car he just purchased. And he, he started with, you know, I'm a, a chief marketing officer, and I could pretty much have any car that I wanted, but I purchased a Honda Civic. And I, I paused, and I said, yeah. And he said, now, there's no way that was an emotional decision. I did it for practical reasons to save money for my family. <laughs> so at that point, I, I kind of gave up, and I didn't want to you know, argue too much. But I think you can see in that statement that he made that emotion is definitely involved. Absolutely. If he's wanting to look good to his family, um, et cetera. So even if that wasn't his reason, emotion would have been involved. But just his statement, I don't think he really saw how emotion was involved in purchasing a lower end car for his, for family reasons. Right. And even if we want to be frugal, it's because there's an emotional value that we have. Was our parent frugal Was or was our parent absolutely not frugal? And we've made this vow that we would never be like them. There is some kind of emotional um, uh, agreement we've made that gives us the values that we have. So he values that, you know, frugality on some level and why it's providing for his family. Maybe it's love out of family, which we all know is emotion. And yeah, so I I completely see it there. And it is interesting because, you know, a lot of of, uh, uh, business owners can't see it. And you're right in that you and I a lot of times deal with the people who are not the creatives. We're dealing and making the, you know, deals and negotiations with the people who do fancy themselves incredibly logical and, and practical. And that's Absolutely. not always the best person to be selling our products and services to. Right. So, well, let's talk about that a little bit, who it is that you're talking to day in and day out. And really what I'd like to hear is, who is your ideal customer? I know that you deal with a lot of C-suite and CMOs, um, but when people are saying a certain thing, you're like, ding, 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 there, I can help them. What? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I think when you opened up our talk, you did say something about companies that may be having trouble growing their business and maybe don't quite understand what's happening and why things are not growing. That is a bell that goes off with me because Mm. often it's 
not understanding that emotions and feelings are what's driving things, and they haven't even explored that. So there's one thing that I do listen for. Uh, in terms of titles and, and company responsibilities, obviously I speak with marketers and marketing researchers, but my best clients are the ones who are leading edge, if you will. They're open to new ideas, to mm -hmm. new thoughts. They, they do like to get into the psychology of consumer behavior because once they get in there, they'll start understanding and seeing how important emotions and feelings are. Um, they're open to trying new things, innovative things, because um, the techniques that we use, uh, the hypnosis interviewing and the psychodrama and even this priming approach, are different than what they may be used to. So they have to be willing to um, uh, reach out and try new things um, and trust the, you know, the, the science behind it all. Mm -hmm. um, but again, th those people, I think, that have a little taste of this, who maybe have read an interesting article about emotions. Uh, one area of study that's very interesting these days is called behavioral economics. Uh, and people who have a taste of behavioral economics are good clients because they start to understand it and they start to see what's interesting about human behavior and how we may be able to get into uh, understanding why people do, quote, irrational things and how we might be able to uh, change their behavior with our research. Well, you don't have to do a survey on me. I buy solely for the great packaging. <laughs> I'm fully yeah. aware of it. And I'm telling you right now, if you make me mm -hmm. feel amazing with your packaging, I'm in. So um, no no secrets there. <laughs> well, what's interesting about that, Priscilla, is that it's uh, getting back academically again. Seeing a great package is a heuristic. It's a shortcut help to the decisions I want to make, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. People use those types of cues all the time because they don't want to think really hard. They don't want to extend the effort to examine the package and the, and the ingredients of a food, perhaps. And if they see a package that gives them a color that communicates emotionally some feature that they're looking for, they're happy to stop there and move on and convince themselves that this is a good product. And so, so many of those packaging cues or word cues or other cues uh, in the environment and, and on consumer goods um, are used by people to get to a proper emotional state. And then that's, all, that's as far as they need to go. They don't need to think real hard about it and they move on. Mm -hmm. I Yeah, I appreciate the shortcut. And I think that our brains are wired for that. We're trying to look for, you know, shortcuts all the time. So my shortcut is if you use orange on your packaging, and it's a really amazing, cool, modern design with some white space, I'll buy it. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, You're not from Oklahoma State, are you? No, I'm not. I'm not at all. But I like I like that idea. Let, let's talk about this. Um, have you ever done an interesting uh, job like that? Like, have you put this logo in front and then this logo and done that kind of, you know, give us, give us some kind of an exact, you know, view of, of looking directly at people's um, immediate responses. Well, um, I don't know about changing up logos and things like that, but there is one interesting study uh, that we conducted in the past couple of years that um, kind of helps us to understand how subconscious emotionality can work. So the client's, was a retail uh, client, a store, um, and it, it's a store uh, that catered at least the products that were being sold uh, from the client at this, in this um, environment were 
clients that related more to blue collar professionals. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, basically we did um, a traditional survey and we asked people how they felt about the store along an array of feelings that people had. But we also employed some of these priming techniques to see what maybe their subconscious emotions were. And one thing that was very interesting, and it was um, counter logic, if you will, counterintuitive, is that people who were implicitly, that is subconsciously frustrated with this store, um, purchased more from it. We, we actually had their purchase <laughs> behavior, right? So the logic is, if I'm frustrated, I'm not gonna purchase things here. But when we actually dug deeper into it and theorized about it, it made sense. And here's how. That these blue-collar individuals have tough jobs. They work with their hands. There's struggles in the work that they do. And the frustration is consistent with the struggle that's involved in their job identity. Mm-hmm. So that when they are frustrated in the store, that fit their identity and their emotional dynamic, if you will, um, and therefore subconsciously they were attracted to that store more often. So the nature of their job um, made frustration a positive thing. Now, when we asked them directly, hey, you know, does this frustration make you want to buy more from the store? They would say no. But when you did the statistics and you correlated their implicit frustration with their purchase, there was a positive relationship there, and that's how we uh, we theorized about it. The frustration in their job struggles was consistent with the frustration with the store that they felt. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have a confessional, Paul. Here I go. Oh. <laughs> so okay. when I met you, we were in St. Louis, and actually I brought my daughter on that trip with me, which I frequently do. Um, and so after I went to the conference, uh, she and I went to the mall. Because she's 13. This is just should come as no surprise to anybody. (laughs) So we went into uh, Forever 21. And so I'm just, you know, hanging back. She wants to do her thing. And I walk into that place. And I mean, the thing, the place was a pit. I mean, clothes everywhere, things not hung up. And it was a massive store. I mean, it was just so big. And I walked in and I was just like, if I wanted to feel this, I would go to my home and walk into her room and feel like, oh, my gosh, we need to clean this up. Why is this hanging here? Why is this? This is so out of order. When you are speaking to someone, I, I do manage creatives and I am a creative person, but also I hang all my work shirts up in color, you know, sequence. OK, so okay. I'm a little bit more confessional. So this is interesting in terms of a market marketing uh, uh, research um, point of view and the emotion that happened there. I went in there and it was just like it was I was so frustrated that mm-hmm. I really totally gave up. I just kind of like I wasn't I wasn't going to find something, you know, I, I normally I go in a store. I'm looking for a particular thing. OK, you need jeans. Let's go look at that. Let's go do You know, there was no way. I mean, literally every other shirt, every other thing hanging next to each other was a different thing. So it wasn't like here's this thing. Here it is in the six sizes. Like the six sizes could have been anywhere in the store. Right. Mm-hmm. And you would think that I would walk out and I wouldn't purchase anything. But emotionally, I just gave up and I just completely let go. And so I let her walk around, let her do it. I just had no, I had no fight in me 
at all. Really? Mm-hmm. None. So emotionally, something very much happened. And one of the other things that happened to me when I was walking out and I thought, gosh, I just spent some money in there. And that place is a dive. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, well, I probably got a very, very good deal because if the company's this disorganized, they're practically giving it away. Okay. And I had an emotional connection to the fact that they can't pay enough for people to go actually fold the clothes and hang them up to, you know, it's probably getting passed on to me. I probably got a very good deal. And emotionally, I was satisfied with the purchases for her there when emotionally I was disgusted by the experience. Well, that's a real interesting um, what uh, trans- transition from, you know, feeling frustrated with that and then purchasing something right. based upon a rationale that, oh, okay, I must have gotten a good deal. Um, I'll share another one, and you, you saw this in the presentation I gave related to that, and it, it, we talked about, you mentioned earlier, do we switch around the colors of a logo, et cetera. Um, one study that's very interesting found that in selling a pizza cutter in a print ad, um, and selling it on sale, I think the regular price was $7, and the sale price was $5. Right. In the print ad, they positioned the sale price from the regular price in one instance, I think, eight inches apart. Mm-hmm. And then in another instance, they just switched it and put those two numbers farther apart. So I think it was 14 inches apart. Mm-hmm. And the mind, even though you wouldn't think that that would make a difference, it's the same sale price, it's the same pizza cutter, right? When you position the font, or at least in this study, when they position the font farther away, some part of the subconscious saw those differences in prices as greater than when they were closer together. Therefore, there was the conclusion from this subconscious illogical mind that the savings was greater. Therefore, this was perceived as a better value, and it sold more. And there was purchase interest was higher uh, among just moving those two sale prices farther apart on a print ad. It completely worked on me. I followed along. I was just like watching it, and I'm like, okay, you showed one. I showed that. I'm like, yeah, that's a better deal. And it mm-hmm. is interesting when you are being made aware of it that you start seeing those things, you know, and and understanding the emotions, but. You're right in that I think we go back to the point some people think, oh, I'm going to become aware of it and I'm going to beat the system. No, our brains are always trying to get those shortcuts. Our brains are always trying to do this. We can't turn that process off. So for a brand, it is important to understand these things because this is what is happening day in and day out there when people are getting the choice to either choose our brand product or service or someone else's. This is what's happening. It's happening like in in micro, you know, seconds and, and they're either choosing us or they're not. And we totally have to we have to figure that out. And you do, you and I have this in common. We work with, you know, CEOs, business owners, CMOs who are stuck. I think that's when, you know, the knock comes yeah. at our door. And I think I hear that, that that's when the knock comes at your door. They've been successful. They can afford market research. They can afford, you know, marketing expertise, but they, and they would love to do something, but they don't know why. They, they, mm-hmm. the skills that brought them here, the products, the services, the look, the feel, everything that brought them the success brings them a certain level of success. And breaking through that next plateau into, you know, more either more profitability or a larger company, whatever it is that their goal is, 
I that's where I get people. And I can completely see that people would be getting frustrated with their brand. What's going on? Why is it not working? And then need to reach out and find out what's the nuance of the emotions, you know, that are happening there. So not I, only the nuance of the emotions, but the fact that probably if there's a problem, there's something in the subconscious that they're not picking up with their Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, talking to their customers rationally or any other thing that they're doing that's based on the system, too, uh, that so many people are relying on. Mm-hmm. Now, with all of this interesting work, we talk about emotions, and I just did this nice confessional. I should have laid down while I told you the story. <laughs> um, so when you're at cocktail parties or when you're mingling with people and you tell them what you do, what's the reaction? Are they like on guard? Is he going to hypnotize me? Or does does the conversation get interesting? Well, if I do talk about that hypnosis interviewing, you know, they think they're wondering if I'm hypnotizing them or else they'll say, oh, you can't hypnotize me. We get a lot of people that say they can't be hypnotized. Mm -hmm. But in terms of some of the other work that I do, um, I I think because people don't understand emotion so much, it's like they don't even know what to ask. So I don't know how deep that goes. But what often happens is the relating of some of these stories that we've been talking about that if they ask me, okay, well, how do the subconscious emotions affect me? And I just like to, to talk about interesting ways that they do, much like we've talked about a, a couple of other quick examples here. So it's been found that if when you meet somebody and you're evaluating their personality uh, or judging them in, in some way, if you're holding a warm beverage in your hand, let's say it's wintertime and you're holding coffee or whatever, hot chocolate, mm-hmm. um, you're more likely to evaluate that person as warm than if you were holding a cold beverage in your hand because there's this thing called embodied cognition and the transference of the warmth of the beverage you have transfers into the judgment of this is a warm person. So if you're trying to you know, come off as warm to people at a, at a party, serve them warm beverages and they'll, they'll you know, have them hold <laughs> to them. Um, So there are a lot of cool things like that. Um, Another one that's interesting is that, again, along the lines of embodied cognition, if there is a certain smell of fish in a a store or in the air somewhere, wherever it may be, and there has to be some evaluation of an object or a person as being honest or not, research has found that if there is this fishy smell, Mm -hmm. the interpretation of a fishy smell will translate to a fishy person, and that person may be evaluated as less honest. Mm -hmm. So be careful of how your house smells or, you know, uh, what's happening in shopping environments or whatever it may Mm be, uh, Mm -hmm. and be aware that that evaluation takes place when you're not thinking logically about what's happening to you. Again, that's coming back to those heuristic, you know, cues that our, our mind is just so hungry for. Yeah. We, we really want, we want the work taken out of things for us, we want we, we we want an answer. We want it now, and and, and our 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 brains are going to try and see the pattern. They can't unsee it and create the conclusion. I, I, I... And that and that does speak to again. If we're talking about marketing strategy or marketing executions, really, um, there are certain situations in an environment that will lead people to rely more on the subconscious or it will lead the subconscious to influence people more often. So if we're in a hurry, we don't have time to think. If we're kind of just in a relaxed mode, we're not really thinking hard, we're watching TV relaxed and not thinking hard, that's when the subconscious will take over. 
it's been shown that as we grow older and our cognitive proficiency starts to deteriorate, that the subconscious feelings that we have, maybe that were formed many, many years ago, mm -hmm. uh, seem to have more power than if we have the cognitive abilities to think logically about something. So there are environmental opportunities and certain things about people that marketers should be should notice mm -hmm. in their marketing tactics and strategies to leverage what's happening in the subconscious emotionally too. Well, and you can just extend that for those people who are marketing politics and politicians think about what that outcome is, understanding sure. truly how people are making those those decisions. So, you know, a lot of times I talk with market researchers and a lot of times when I talk with my clients about you know, doing market research, the thing I hear a lot is, oh, we can't afford that. So <laughs> I like when I talk with a market researcher, um, whether they're qualitative or quantitative, to dispel that myth a little bit. What does it look like to to engage emotive analytics? Uh, when, we, um, when we talk about costs and how much it may cost to invest in a study with us, it can range from down into the, like the $5,000 range, especially if we're just consulting about things. Uh, but if you want to do large sales, scale studies and really get into complex data collection, it can cost into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sure. Um, but for the audience that we're talking to, probably you ought to think about budgeting somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, the low teens for a, a study up into maybe the 20s or 30s if you have that much to invest to get mm -hmm. at a good uh, study to get at the emotions and the subconscious emotions. Not that we can't do anything for less than that, but um, that's just a general investment that uh, companies um, are are paying for mm -hmm. uh, the type of research that we do. So you can do some consultative work where you're maybe helping someone. I hate to use the DIY word because you have a real expertise, and I but I think that does help people understand that where maybe they can they can take your expertise and say, okay, so knowing that, now we know what we need to to look for. Is that right? So that you can give them the expertise about how they need to measure, uh, start measuring emotional associations with the brands, the products, the services that they have. It, it, would that be putting words in your mouth? or No, that that's a good characterization of the consultation function that I can serve. Um, in terms of DIY, DIY um, we do have products, or my company has a product that is a DIY type of product that can have my clients set up and conduct surveys on their own, and I'm happy to help clients through that product. The product is called IEProU. If they go to my website, emotiveanalytics.com, they can see that, and they can contact me, and I can talk to them through that. Um, basically, you can conduct different numbers of study for different costs. I think the lowest price point we have for a study is $3,900, which doesn't include samples, so we'd have to talk about sample right, costs right. there. Mm -hmm. But there's a way for companies to cost-effectively um, do some of this work on their own, and like I said, I'm happy to um, take my clients through the process and get them to understand it and work through it 
uh, as part of the uh, research study itself. Right. Well, I really appreciate that. At this show, we a lot of times really try and, you know, peel back, you know, some of the um, hang-ups people have um, because they think things are, like, completely priced out of their budget, they, so they won't even have the conversation. And I really right. would like, you know, more CMOs and CEOs to ha- engage people that, well, what would it look like if we did this kind of a study? What would it look like? And what would I be getting? And what would I be able to do with this information? But I think really them getting just exposure to the expertise you have gets them thinking differently about, now, what do I really need to know so that I can make a better marketing decision? So to me, I always feel like, you know, the first stop is going to a market research person, and then second stop should be coming to a marketing company like us, because then we're going to execute based on that, those findings. And so sometimes I, I find that people go the other way around because they don't feel they can afford the other one. Right. So right. that's Right, yeah, great. and the consultation that we talked about, you know, just teaching people about how emotions work might, you know, turn on some light bulbs and get marketers to change their strategy a little bit um, and then try out the strategy with some of their customers, and they may see that that's all they need to do. So uh, we can certainly help um, mm-hmm. with that type of engagement. That's awesome. Well, listeners, please uh, send in questions you have. Um, obviously, connect with Paul. It's just uh, Paul Connor, C-O-N-N-E-R. You can find him on LinkedIn. Find him at emotiveanalytics.com. Read a little bit about that, uh, IE Pro U. And also, if you're in the market research uh, community, then don't miss him at uh, IIEX. That's in Atlanta this June. And, uh, I, you know, like I said, any questions you want to send uh, to us that are specifically about brand, I'm happy to call Paul back and, and, uh, and, and beg him to give us our expertise again so we know what's going on in the world of marketing research. So this is Priscilla McKinney with Little Bird Marketing here at Ponderings from the Perch uh, today along with Paul Connor. And as always, make it a great day and happy marketing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.